Good morning, listeners. This is Michael Martins, your host with the Martins Critical Review, broadcasting today from Bluebird, West Kelowna, British Columbia. In this episode, we'll continue our investigative series into the state of the Salmonid resource in British Columbia. Today, our focus is on the majestic steelhead in the Skeena watershed. I'm honored to welcome Mr. Bob Hooten to the program. Bob is a retired fishery scientist who dedicated 37 years of his life to fisheries management in British Columbia, focusing primarily on steelhead conservation. His long career included a 13-year tenure at the head of the fisheries section in Smithers, overseeing the Skeena region, and his final nine years of service were spent at the head of the Fish and Wildlife Service section for all of BC. Following his retirement, Bob authored two books covering the history of steelhead management in BC, the first entitled Skeena Steelhead, Unknown Past, Uncertain Future, and the second book was published to complete the saga with specific reference to a dozen of BC's premier steelhead streams entitled Days of Rivers Past. To this day, Bob continues to spread the wild steelhead conservation gospel to anyone that will listen and actively blogs on his website, steelheadvoices.com. Today, we're going to affect the key factors affecting wild steelhead population abundance, why this species is so important socially and economically, and what we can do from a management perspective to assist them to flourish. Bob, welcome to the show, and thank you for your time. Oh, happy to be here, Michael. And uh, to the extent that we can move the, uh, the fisheries dial on this province, uh, we'll try to do that. Excellent. So first off, Bob, can you, can you give the listeners a brief history on your journey uh, concerning your involvement with BC Fisheries? Sure. Um, <laughs> there's one thing that, uh, that I neglected to mention earlier, but, you know, it's probably worth bringing up now. But I, I think that if there was a pivotal moment in, in my entry into the fisheries business, it probably came, you know, after I had uh, graduated from university and uh, was sort of looking for uh, opportunities to get into the, the thing that I thought I wanted to do for the rest of my life kind of deal. And, and uh, I had a neighbor at that time, you know, growing up in South Burnaby, his name was Bob McMinn, Robert G. McMinn. And for a period of time, he was the head of the fisheries program for the provincial government. And uh, he, he had a son that was the same age as I was, you know, we were constant uh, playmates and teammates and all that kind of stuff growing up in South Burnaby there. But, um, in any case, uh, I knew he was in the fisheries business provincially, although he had sort of moved on from, from uh, that head position, I think, by the time that I got out of university. But in any case, uh, he set up an interview for me with a gentleman by the name of uh, Ron Thomas, who at that time was the assistant director of the fisheries program for the province. And, uh, you know, that sort of introductory discussion that I had with uh, Ron Thomas in his office in Victoria led to the opportunity for a, a summer job with the, with the, with the fish and game branch of, as it was known at the time. And, uh, you know, just doors started to open sort of after that and, uh, you know, a career path developed and 37 years later, I went to pasture. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm assuming that you were uh, an angler prior to that? Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, even though um, my father was, uh, did his level best to sort of square me around a little bit, you know, as a kid growing up to do some fishing, he, he, he wouldn't be called a passionate angler himself. But so I think there, there may have been, uh, you know, some kind of a hidden gene or something in there that, uh, you know, created some magnetism between myself and fish. And, uh, you know, I just, uh, I couldn't get enough of that sort of thing, you know. 
as a kid and then, you know, once there was the opportunity for employment and a little bit of income, well then, okay, leisure time is spent chasing fish, pure and simple, and steelhead were the, were the focus. I mean, big, beautiful fish in beautiful places, you know, why not? Yeah, and I agree. I think there is uh, some sort of gene encoding that uh, creates these crazy anglers that are so uh, preoccupied uh, with fish. It's, it's, it's uh, not a normal uh, pursuit uh, in, in sort of the greater population. Yeah, we got to find, a, you know, an excuse or something to blame somewhere along the line. So I guess that that counts. There we go. Uh, so, Bob, take the listeners back in time, if you would, please, and describe for me uh, what the Sustut River was like when you first arrived there in 1972, and uh, how does it compare uh, today? Well, I mean, if you want to talk about pristine loveliness, uh, that was it. You know, the uh, the upper Sustut Johansson country that was, uh, you know, chronicled by uh, John Fennelly in his book, Steelhead Paradise. So that was back in, what, 1963. And that sort of recounted that the late 50s and his association there right up to the year of, of his book being published, 1963, in fact. But, um, you know, think of, uh, you know, these crystal clear, beautiful little streams. And they're small, you know, you get this this impression that these are big brawling streams. Well, they're not, you know, the upper Sussex and Joanne's are very small streams. I mean, you can wade them at will. There's no place that you couldn't walk across those streams at a normal flow. And it's subalpine habitat. So there's sort of scrub vegetation for the most part. And, you know, magnificent backdrop of mountains, uh, snow-capped peaks, all this sort of thing. It's just absolute paradise. There was wildlife wandering around all over the place up there. Moose and grizzly bears. And, you know, it was just something special. And then the... Uh, at the time that I was there in in uh, in seventy two, I had a, a a colleague that uh, had gone with me as part of a federal provincial agreement, and he was deployed at the Sustat Bear Confluence, well downstream, whereas I was up in the Sustat Johansson Confluence, far far away. But in in any case, the uh, the Bear River had something like twenty five thousand spawning Chinook in at that time. Wow, and that's you know. In today's world, that's uh, roughly the equivalent of the spawning population of the entire Skeena system. You know, it's, it's a little bit less than that. But uh, in any case, I mean, that tells you something about uh, the abundance that occurred at that point in time. And uh, the confluence area there of the Sustat and Johansson, it was just full, literally full fish. There were so many Chinook in there staging, waiting to go up the Bear River for spawning. And, the, the abundance of bull trout was just unimaginable. You could not make a cast into that confluence pool without catching one. It was as simple as that. You could not get a, a lure or a piece of bait through that water without catching a fish. And, and most often it was gonna be bull trout because they're such ravenous feeders. Steelhead were kind of hard to catch, you know, for the most part because they, they've been pushed to the perimeters or to the very, very, you know, tail out of the, of the confluence pool there because you know there was such massive populations of chinook all over in front of them and, and the, the bull trout trying to feed on eggs and so on and so forth it was i mean it, it's literally unimaginable you know to have had that experience and compare it to anything in today's world so yeah it was a special place believe me yeah and uh what happened there in terms of the uh, productivity well, the, uh, you know, the first blight on the landscape was the, the, the BC Railway extension that, uh, you know, came from 
down in the Fort St. James country and sort of carved across the Northwest and, and uh, into Bear Lake, down along the shores of Bear Lake, down the Bear River, across the Sustut, down the Sustut, and then on up the main stem Skeena beyond. And uh, if you want to talk about light on the landscape, that had to be it. You know, I, at the time I said, that's got to be one of the all-time environmental atrocities in British Columbia. You know, it's right in there with, you know, the, the largest of the BC Hydro dams and, the, you know, the flooding of massive valleys and so on. But the scar on the landscape that was left, you know, in those fragile environments up there, you know, along the, the Sustad and up the Skeena and that, those scars are still there today. And, you know, that's a lot of years for that to, to try and recover. To recover. And the ultimate tragedy is, well, of course, they abandoned the rail line as, as uneconomic shortly after they uh, they created that blight on the landscape. So it's just, uh, you know, an environmental atrocity as far as I'm concerned for British Columbia. It, it, it sounds like a uh, uh, we're, we're headed to part two of that with uh, LNG and Site C. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's what we do, you know, and business trumps conservation. It's as simple as that. Well, uh, for us, that Johansson country has been, you know, accessed, you know, again from the Fort St. James sort of area, uh, roads carved through those landscapes on for mining exploration, that sort of thing, a couple of big mines up in that country. And, you know, it just, road access into those sensitive habitats is, is just a death knell. You know, the traffic that goes back and forth through there, you know, every animal within sight of that road is going to end up shot, you know, and uh, the fish populations are going to suffer. It's, it, I'm glad to have seen it when I did, and, and it would bring a tear to my eye if I was to go back there today, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah it would be uh, remarkably different, I'm sure. So, uh, Bob, what's the big deal with steelhead anyway? Well, there's not enough of them, you know, to suit most people's interests anymore, and the the uh, the south north gradient I think is uh, is pretty evident you know the the further south you go in the steelhead range down into California the more desperate the situation and as you progress north well it's relatively better but you know you get well beyond the center of abundance so that uh, the productivity is less the abundance is less even though the habitat may still be intact you know you're you're never going to have as many fish you know in the Skeena system as you did in the San Juan uh, Sacramento system in California or the Umpore, the Rogue, the Shoots, those sorts of really, really productive habitats to the south of us. But, um, you know, our, our saving grace over most of the history of this province is that uh, the environment that they're produced in has remained relatively intact. So they, they've had that to their advantage. But, you know, as access increases and population pressures reach out to the, the trend in abundance that uh, has been so obvious south of the 49th parallel and, and through southern BC, that trend is catching up to us in the north. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Um, and can we determine what the economic value of steelhead uh, or the steelhead fishery is for the Skeena region uh, in relation to the other uh, users of the resource? Uh, you know, I can't quote you the figure just off the top. I mean, there's been some studies done, all right, on, on uh, recreational fishing in the scheme in general. Um, you know, I can't honestly say that, that, that steelhead has been partitioned out of there, but uh, it's pretty big business, you know, make no mistake. I mean, you know, if you go through the, the, uh, the mid to late 80s into the, the early part of the century, you can see that uh, 
the growth and the interest and, and the development of the sport fishing business in the Skeena watershed was just amazing. You know, the number of guys, the number of lodges, you know, the access increase, uh, the use of helicopters, you know, um, try and get a reservation in, you know, in any of the motels and Smithers or Terrace at the peak of the season, you know, and uh, you're up against the odds, that sort of thing, you know. So uh, clearly, you know, it, it was an economic driver in those areas, you know, and until this past couple of years, when, and this year in particular with the COVID thing, but uh, make no mistake, I mean, very noticeable impact on the local economies and Smithers and Terrace in particular. So it would be fair to say that uh, on a per pound of fish caught that the sport fishery is returning a greater economic impact for those regions than either commercial or First Nations? Oh, absolutely no contest. Make no mistake. I mean, the steelhead are just uh, are nothing but, a, you know, a problem for the commercial fishing industry. They just assume never see one, you know, it's just nothing but grief for them. They're low economic value, you know, and, uh, you know, they just bring upon all kinds of criticism from all other people, you know, the recreational sector in particular, you know, whenever it's developed that uh, X number of steelhead may have been caught or harvested by the commercial sector, but it's absolutely no contest. I mean, it's probably up in a, a thousand to one ratio in terms of the value recreationally versus commercially. And, and, and so really, uh, sorry, carry sorry, on. I, yeah. Well, I just want to say that, you know, from First Nations are, are kind of the same in the sense that, uh, you know, um, steelhead fishermen are, are viewed as, you know, somewhat evil because they play with their fish, right? You know, fish are food. They're not, you know, a recreational item and catch and release is sort of, you know, against their philosophy or religion, call it what you want. So um, they have, you know, steelhead really have no value to the First Nations. You know, they're, they're not a particularly preferred food item. They're way down the list, you know, from uh, Chinook and Sockeye, for example. So they're low economic value. They're, once again, they're just sort of problematic for First Nations. Yeah, yeah. Although, so given that equation, you know, really with the dwindling uh, supply of fish and dwindling population, if we're looking to maximize the economic opportunity for, uh, you know, those regions, uh, clearly the sport fishery is the, is the, what we should be focusing on as, as opposed to these other harvesting methods. In a perfect world. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and Bob, do we know what the, what percentage of our historical steelhead escapement uh, is still in check? Do you have that figure? No, because, um, you know, in all parts of the province, you know, I, I would say that uh, the, there was no, you know, serious stock assessment or, or estimates of abundance for steelhead until the cell monitor enhancement program started, you know, to crank up in a big way. So through the late 70s, early 80s, arguably perhaps through into about 1990, there was, uh, you know, an infusion of money that uh, was unprecedented and, you know, people were hired, they're out there doing what they do. And, and that was, I would say, the first real good estimates of abundance. But you know, as I pointed out in my Skeena book, I mean, we started 100 years too late, or in, in some cases, more than 100 years too late. So who knows where the baseline was before a commercial fishing industry really began, you know, in, in the case of the Skeena in the late 1870s, you know, in the case of the Fraser, you know, 10 or 15 years before that. So 
if, you know, if you look at the number of vessels that were involved in the commercial fishing industry and how they operated back in those days, you know, six and occasionally even seven days a week, you know, would completely, you know, sealing off the throat of rivers like the Fraser and Mesquina. They obviously put a big hole in, the, in those populations before anybody ever came along, you know, a century later to try and figure out, well, what do we got to begin with here, you know? So it would it be safe to say that uh, the steelhead numbers are likely mirroring uh, the other salmon sea species? Yeah, for the most part, I, I think, you know, there's a lot of checks and balances for steelhead that uh, sort of soften the interannual variability. There's so many, you know, they're not like well, pink salmon, two-year life history, you know, so it can be feast or famine or cobalt, three years, same deal, you know, feast or famine. You know, steelhead have got so so many life history combinations, you know, freshwater ages, you know, two, three, four, five, that kind of stuff, uh, ocean ages, one summer at sea, two, three, four, that kind of stuff, you know, so, and then you throw in the repeat spawning incidents, you know, and, and it differs for summer versus winter fish. But if you work at all the combinations there, you know, a disaster in any one year tends to be compensated for by the fact that, uh, oh, you've got some, you still have some fish at sea to sort of fill that hole when they do return, you know, it's not as if you wiped out a whole year necessarily, you know, because there's so many checks and balances in there. But, um, you know, having said all that, you know, the, whereas the interannual variability may not have the peaks and valleys that you see in some of the other species like, uh, you know, sockeye or, or pinks or coho, that sort of thing, the long-term trend is down. I mean, make no mistake, you know, again, not the peaks and valleys, but the trend line, if you sort of, you know, cover off the median point between the peaks and valleys and, and look at that line over, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, yeah, it's not a happy story. Yeah, and I certainly know from my experience on the Queen Charlottes, which dates back almost 20 years now, uh, the abundance, particularly the last couple of years, has been probably less than 10% of what it was historically. Um, you know, it was the, the yakoon at one point was, uh, literally, you know, every, every run would have a couple of fish in it. And, uh, you know, the, the last trip we did last December, uh, there was eight, eight rod days that we spent on the, uh, uh on that trip. And, and we got one fish to the beach and, and one other hookup. So, I mean, that's a, a pretty sad state of, uh, affairs in, in the prime, prime time of that run. That's a pretty good indicator. Yeah, you know, yeah. hard to deny. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty pretty solid evidence. Yeah. So, uh, Bob, what are what are some fundamental changes uh, you feel must happen in BC's fisheries resource management philosophy uh, for it to become truly sustainable? Well, you know, <laughs> we got to get off the treadmill. I think of uh, you know the sort of consultation. You know, I mean. The, the model that uh, governments have attached them, themselves to when we, uh, we want to talk about, you know, regulation of fisheries in general is, uh, you know, well, the consultative arena, you know, and so you've got, you've got the three solitudes, if you will, you know, the, the commercial sector that they have their forums and the recreational sector has its forum and sport fishing advisory board. And, uh, and then the first nations, well, they have multiple forums behind closed doors, I might say with DFO, uh, the province is really not involved in any of those sorts of discussions, but uh, so, you, you know, you have these, these three uh, somewhat competing factions, you know, operating somewhat independently of each other and, and in their consultation arrangements and, 
So, you know, if you're talking about developing a plan for the year ahead, you know, you're in isolation. You don't know if you're a recreational fisherman trying to deal through the only forum that DFO recognizes, which is the Sport Fish Advisory Board. If you're trying to deal through that forum, uh, not knowing anything at all about what DFO might be doing down the hallway behind another closed door with the First Nations community, or what agreements they struck with the, with the commercial sector. Well, you know, how are you supposed to plan in, in that sort of a situation? You know, you're, you're sort of being isolated and picked off. And then, you know, it, you get the impression that uh, the, the adjudicators and DFO were working both sides against the middle all the time, you know, and, you know, you're left absolutely, you know, frustrated over uh, the fact that nothing ever seems to change. And everybody, everybody seems to demand, you know, science-based decision-making. Oh, well, you know, we've got to have more and better science to guide the decisions. Okay, well, you know, that's never a bad thing. But the status quo prevails in the meantime. So, you know, it's not as if, oh, full stop, we're going to go out here and we're going to, uh, you know, collect a bunch of the information that people are demanding we have to make better decisions. Uh, no, it doesn't happen. You know, you just sort of roll it over from year to year, doing the same old, same old, or variations on that same theme. And if there is ever any science collected, I don't know, where does it go? You know, does anybody ever see it? Is there an application of it? I, I'm not seeing it. I'm not feeling it. You know, so that's the kind of stuff that, uh, you know, frustrates me and, and that sort of, you know, marriage between, you know, government leadership and, and the, the various fisheries communities, you know, the consultative arena. arena. It, it doesn't work in my view. You know, it's time for something to, you know, we need a benevolent dictator or something there up there at the top that says, look, I've heard you, I've heard you, I've heard you. This is what we're doing for the betterment of the resource. Yeah, it, it sounds like at some point those decisions must be made because if we continue to pander to whatever special interest groups that have their own agenda, the, the ultimately the fish are going to lose. Uh, you know, if the science is showing that the abundance is declining, there has to be a reduction in harvest across the board. Otherwise, those fish will simply disappear. Yeah, I mean, there's just no question about it. You know, if, if there's the one thing that we can control in the, in the great scheme of things, it's the harvest. You know, right. whether it's First Nations, recreational, commercial, that's the one tool that we have at our disposal that is more powerful than anything else. You're not going to affect climate change. You know, you, you, you get what you get out there in the deep blue sea, basically. You know, it's, it's, it's beyond your influence, you know, for the most part. Same thing with, uh, you know, the the freshwater producing habitat, well, you know, you get storms. Is anybody going to fix that? You know, you get the, you know, floods and droughts and all that kind of stuff that are hard on fish populations, and especially if they come in successive years, that sort of thing. You can't do anything about that. What you can do is control the harvest. That's the only effective tool that we have. But we don't use it very well. And so how, how could we manage that harvest better other than, of course, just shutting it down completely? Well, you know, terminal fisheries, selective fisheries, we hear these, these terms thrown around, but, uh, you know, you can't have the sort of classic traditional mixed stock fishery that involves things like gill nets in the throat of a river. You know, it does not work. You're going to fish gill nets in Dean Channel? Well, guess what? You know, you may be targeting, you know, enhanced chum or chinook populations. Well, you know, you've got wild populations of those same species, plus a whole host of other species, you know, pinks, coal, steelhead, 
that are caught in those same nets, you know, because they're all in the same waters at the same time. You know, that, that's, that's sort of a, a really small example. You know, the bigger ones are the approaches to the Fraser and the Skeena and the Nass sort of thing, you know, where you, you have gillnet fisheries that uh, gillnets do not discriminate between wild and hatchery, this species and other species, you know. So you, you simply cannot accomplish, you know, the, the sort of selective fishery and harvest the, the strong and, and protect the weak. You can't do that the way we've been going about it, you know, since time began in the commercial fishing industry. So, you know, massive change in direction required there in terms of the, of the use of gillnets. So, I mean, so I mean, obviously a gillnet's a highly efficient fishing tool if you're a commercial fisherman. What's, what's the option uh, which has greater uh, selectivity? You're going to have to, instead of fishing the, you know, the estuaries and the lower reaches of the, the migration corridors and that sort of thing, you're going to, excuse me, you're going to have to fish in the terminal areas, in the tributaries themselves, where surpluses of various stocks can be harvested. Um, I mean, that's the only way you can do it. You know, you've got to get rid of kill nets. It's as simple as that. You know, we made it too easy. Yes, they are the cheapest, the most efficient, the most, you know, easily deployed and all that sort of thing but the most indiscriminate harvesting technology we've got out there. You know, we, we got to move away from that. There's lots, there's lots of places in the lower Fraser River, for example, where surplus chum could be harvested. You know, you go to the Stave or the Weaver Creek Shahala system or, you know, the better for goodness sake, but uh, you know, you don't take them out of the main stem Fraser when the co-migrating Thompson and Chilcotin steelhead are there, you know? <laughs> You can't do it. It's, you know, say, oh, well, you know, it's mandatory release or we've got this little protection window in the middle of the run, you know, where we're not supposed to be fishing, but oh, guess what we do? You know, there's still a bunch of nets in the river. There always is. So, you know, you, you just got to get rid of that non-selective, quote, technology out there and replace it with the terminal harvest. You know, I don't care how you do it in a place like the Steve River or you know, the lower Chehalis or Weaver Creek where you've got, you know, hordes of enhanced chum coming back, you know, I don't care if you do it with dynamite for crying out loud, you know, but you, <laughs> but don't do it in the Fraser River with Gilman's. Right. We're fooling right. ourselves. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, what, what about the notion that uh, we can just um, enhance through hatchery operations and, and make up the abundance that we've lost? Is, is, that, uh, is that a possibility? It's not working, you know, uh, and this is another one of the, the great, you know, sources of frustration, I think, for veterans in the, in the fisheries management arena. You know, you, you look around and say, well, you know, what are the examples of success? And, you know, I mean, the one that I, I like to point to that, you know, a lot of the steelhead, you know, the Thompson steelhead hatcheries, you know, solution advocates promote. The one I like to remind them of is uh, you've got uh, two sockeye stocks in southern British Columbia that have been, you know, it's been pushing 30 years now that they've been on the endangered list. And, uh, you know, DFO and, and their science community have uh, pulled out all the stops to do everything possible to keep those stocks alive through hatchery intervention. Well, I'm, I'm going to say that, uh, you know, in at least half of the last 10 years, there have been zero returns, zero to the Sackinac program. And, I, and the latest figure I saw for the cultist program was that they had one sockeye return this year so far. Now, okay, maybe there's a few more to come, 
But my point would be that, uh, you know, almost 30 years later, millions, millions of dollars spent and nobody wants to recognize that it's not working. You know, yeah, I mean, those stocks are functionally extinct. You know, that there's nothing else you can say about that. And, and Thompson's and in, Chocotin's in deal are, are in every bit a mirror image of those sorts of things. And if somebody thinks you can take the last, you know, few members of a gene pool and somehow recreate a population of yesteryear, I asked them, where do you get your information from? You know, you show us the science because the, the amount of science to the contrary is overwhelming. But, you know, people just, they're very selective, you know, and they'll, they'll talk about, oh, well, you know, gee, there's a whole bunch of sockeye coming back to the Asoyas Lake system this year and uh, see what's possible and all that. Well, I, you know, I don't pretend to know all the ins and outs of the Asoyas sockeye deal, but, you know, it is an enhancement that's done that. You know, it's most of that is a natural phenomena, and you know people need to pay attention to that. Right. Stop killing them, and guess what? You get some back. <laughs> and, and with the hatchery programs, is the lack of success due to the reduced genetic fitness of those fish, essentially? Well, you know th that's a big part, of it. and and I like to go back to my you know I mentioned earlier the set program you know from the mid seventies onward for especially, but. That was sort of, you know, if you want to call it the golden era of, of uh, hatchery investment in, in southern BC, especially. But if you look around Vancouver Island, how many hatcheries that, that flourished during that period of time, you know, big qualicum, little qualicum, you know, they're dabbling on the Nanaimo, the, the Campbell Quinson system, Soul Mass over Port Alberni, Nitnat, you know, uh, there are some big facilities that went into operation in those years. And, the, the typical response is that the, the, the first two or three or four or five broods, you know, have pretty impressive survival rates and it creates this illusion that, oh man, we're out of the weeds now, you know, look what we got. Big surpluses coming back to the hatcheries and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, look at it, fast forward 30, 40 years and say, what do we got? Well, you've got uh, the average size and age of the fish that are now the broodstock in the hatcheries is a pale shadow of what it once was. We're talking, you know, brood populations that are dominated by three-year-old fish. And, and you start asking yourself, well, why is that? Well, you know, I, I don't think people have recognized that the selective processes in hatcheries has been very much to the detriment of the long-term, you know, maintenance of those natural populations. And if, if you think, think about it, you know, so the way they operated, like, you know, big qualicum or quinsum, you know, in the early going was they, they opened the, the gates on return and they took fish until they had enough. Okay, so, you know, how many males and females do you need to get to satisfy your equals for the facility and then slam the gate, you know, and go spawn those and do your thing and all that kind of stuff, release them, away you go. Well, multiple generations of that, you know, you're not paying any attention to the age combination of the, of the brood fish. How many of them were, you know, three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old, you know, is there a component of that population that you want to make sure that you preserve? And if so, you know, you need to be selective about the broodstock, you know. The, the tie of Campbell River, for example, what do you got now? And it's, it's, it's rare to break 30 pounds. There was, you know, I helped beach seine fish up there at the estuary of the Campbell River in the 70s. You know, we had 70-pound Chinook. Wow. You, know, you look at the records of the tie Club, you know, and, and uh, how many they caught and what the sizes were and all that stuff, and who won the trophy year after year and all that kind of stuff, you know. 
it's a pale, pale reflection of what it once was. And I maintain that that's, you know, the, the roots of that are the, the operation of the hatchery programs at the outset. And, you know, they weren't bad people. They were doing what they thought they were supposed to do. It's just that by the time you recognize the outcome of all that, you say, ooh, you know, it, it's going to take as long to, to reverse this as it did to create it. And we're not doing anything to reverse it. It's too late. If you've lost entire components of a population, you're not going to recreate them, you know, by some sort of wizardry fish culture over the next generation or so. And in, and in terms of there's the genetic... one more thing I should point yes. out that I, Sorry. I don't know, yes. carry on so much on this, but you know, the other thing that I don't think people recognize, and this goes back to you know, arguably the most you know revered and and uh, internationally recognized fishery scientists of of our era, sort of thing, a guy by the name of. Uh, W.E. Ricker, Bill Ricker, who is, you know, I mean, they named roads after him at the biological station, that kind of stuff, you know, he was uh, internationally renowned. He produced a paper many, many years ago, I think it was the late 40s, actually, somewhere in there, where he documented not just the, the decline in the, in the average size and age of Chinook salmon caught by the troll fishery, but also that the fish of a given age were getting smaller. So a five-year-old Chinook, you know, at that point in time wasn't as big as it was when the observations first began. And there was less of the fives and sixes, you know, you're starting to move toward, oh, you know, four-year-olds, three-year-olds, that kind of stuff. And you look at the Chinook populations along the coast of BC now, they tend to be dominated by three-year-olds. You know, fish that are, I call them the teenagers. You know, it's getting harder and harder to break 20, 25, 30, that kind of stuff. You know, those fish are commonplace, you know, why, you know, I mean, 30 pounders, nobody looked at those things a few years ago, sort of thing. Show me the 40s and 50s, that kind of stuff, you know. Well, those fish are increasingly less abundant. And I think a large part of that is you, you've got the hatchery sort of, you know, focusing on, you know, whatever survivors of the fishery there, there are. And those survivors have been thinned down by harvest. You know, we're, we're so good at what we do that, uh, you know, the biggest, fastest growing, largest fish, you know, are the first ones to be cropped off by the various fisheries. And, you know, not available in, as the part of the brood population anymore. So you, you carry that sort of practice of harvesting the, the, the best of the best over time. Well, what are you left with? The survivors of the fishery are not the ones that you want to breed. And, and so what, that's kind of a function of uh, their aggression and their, their feeding response, it sounds like? Sure. Sure. I mean, you know, they're those that, uh, you know, grow the biggest, the fastest are the most successful feeders. And, uh, you know, they're the first ones to get caught. You know, for successive generations that uh, those genes and that aggression and, and feeding response are simply removed. And you're left with a bunch of uh, dullards. Well, that's what I say, and you look at the, you know, the compression of run timing for a lot of these stocks, you know, they, you know, Barclay Sound, for example, you know, in the early days of the Robertson Creek hatchery and the, and the startup of the Chinook program, the sport fishery, you know, for those returning adults, you know, it was like six and eight weeks, and, and it was all, you know, near shore, the, you know, the kelp beds and the, and the, little points and the reefs and stuff like that. And lots of little tin boats, you know, you didn't have that 26 foot Brady's fishing 25 miles offshore and all that kind of stuff. Right. You know, it was a, it was a little localized fishery and guys were using, you know, steam sildas and little jigging lures and, you know, catching lots of fish. 
well, you know, what, what do you got now? You know, after multiple generations of that hatchery program, you got a return that's compressed in time. The fish are a whole lot smaller. They're again, dominated by three years old, three year olds. And they sort of, their migration is, is a absolute, you know, racetrack all the way to the mouth of the river. You know, they don't linger in those outside areas for, for weeks at a time and contribute to a recreational fishery anymore. They're coming down the coast and turning the corner and up Alberni Inlet and full stop at the mouth of the river. That's what we've done. Interesting. And, and in the genetic code of these fish, um, and, and let's just stick with the Chinook here for a moment, uh, is there enough variability that over time, given the opportunity to bounce back, that we can begin to see some of those, those traits reemerge? Or is the genetic coding now so uh, diminished in terms of, its, of our variability that we're probably stuck with what we've got or will even get worse over time? I mean, there, we have to be very, very selective, I think, in our breeding programs now to... Uh, you know, to try and recreate some of what's been lost, but uh, you don't want to breed what little remains of, you know, a five-year-old component of a Chinook population with three-year-olds. You know, you want to say, I don't want a five-year-old female or better yet a six or possibly even a seven-year-old female, the big ones, okay? You want to breed them with their kind sort of thing in terms of, you know, age and size and all that sort of thing. So, you know, the more we sort of, you know, mix you know, pool the eggs and sperm, which was the traditional practice in the hatchery sort of thing, you know, the more you do that, the more you, you know, you, you create an average fish that doesn't reflect that natural population or its origins at all. So it's possible, but boy, I'm telling you, like I said earlier, it, it's going to take as long to undo what we've created as it did to create it. And then, and, and outside of that hatchery model, uh, it, let's say if we're looking at a wild steelhead population, is there enough genetic diversity that we can recreate what the original population was like? Yeah, not, not know, case, was, the, the, the population the itself, yeah. Yeah, there, I, I think that uh, on average, they're, uh, you know, the genetic sort of background and, and uh, complexity of those populations still exist. I mean, arguably, the chokehold is too far down the list now to, you know, no matter what happens, but, uh, you know, for, for most of our populations, I mean, it's a case of just get out of the way, you know, never mind artificial intervention with fish culture or anything like that. Just protect the habitat, allow the fish to use it. That's all you have to do. You know, the, these animals can be remarkably resilient given half a chance. Yeah, and certainly all of these fish colonize what was a post-glacial wasteland at some point. And you know, obviously migrated from the south to the north as, as those ecosystems and those uh, watersheds <laughs> were able to sustain, sustain life. And so if, if they've come back from that level of disturbance, albeit that's a very long time span, uh, if, like you say, if we step back and allow them to do what they do, uh, they're probably more than capable, capable of, of getting back to where they once were. Well, you know, I don't think we're ever going to recreate historic abundance because, you know, us human animals have sort of <laughs> desecrated too much of the planet at this point, whether it be the ocean pastures, feeding grounds, or the freshwater habitat from once they came. But, but still, we have a lot of very good productive fish habitat in this province, you know, especially in the northern half and some of the interior drainages. You know, it's underutilized. That, that's the deal, is that... <clears throat> 
you know, going back to what I said earlier, you manage the harvest so that the, that habitat is being utilized and then just get out of the way, you know? Yeah. Uh, these fish are absolutely remarkably resilient if you give them a chance. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, Bob, in terms of conservation efforts, you've said that the process is the product. Can you explain that statement? Well, you know, back to where we started, I guess, but, uh, you know, this business of the reliance on consultation, you know, to sort of carve out a direction for the future. I mean, it's not working, you know, and, and it's, I, I don't care, you know, what forum or, you know, what particular fisheries issue you want to deal with. Well, you know, what's the general approach? Oh, well, you know, we have to get all the actors in the room and, you know, and talk, you know, and, uh, well, first getting all the actors in the room is, virtually mission impossible because, you know, they come from different places, you know, philosophically and genetically probably, but, uh, you know, it, it's what governments do. You've got a problem while well, you create a forum to talk about it sort of thing. And, and, uh, you know, firmly on the fence throughout and, and nothing ever comes out the other end of it, you know, and, and I, I think you can look to any number of examples and, you know, there is, we, we just sent, uh, you know, delegates to a, a fishery standing committee meeting in Ottawa, you know, it's a, a multi-party deal and, uh, you know, it's been convened to, to uh, you know, allegedly take a critical look at a, at a political level at the, the West Coast fisheries. And, you know, okay, well, so there, the BC Wildlife Federation sent, you know, one of their absolute very best people who was very well briefed and gave a, an excellent presentation to the standing committee and all that. And, uh, you know, my question on his return was that, uh, how was it received? And, uh, you know, the response was, well, you know, they seem quite interested in, well, next question, so where to now? No idea. You know, so it, it's kind of classic, right? You know, wow, a, a parliamentary standing committee on fisheries? That sounds pretty impressive, don't you think? A whole bunch of MPs from multiple parties and all that kind of stuff and, and you've got you know extremely well prepared well briefed people you know that are giving the presentations and then poof you know uh, what's the agenda paralysis via analysis yeah exactly you know it's it's what we do best and i think you know where if you look to the south you know what happens is everything ends up in court you know in, in the united states it, you know so you get warring factions duking it out in the courtroom sort of thing. In Canada, you know, we just, you know, we end up in that consultative forum and, you know, hand-wringing and, you know, gnashing of teeth and tearing of hair and ending up firmly on the fence. No decisions. And, and the buck gets passed to the next political administration or generation, you know, and, you know, the guys that were there before, they sort of, you know, their, their foreheads are flat and they've gone on to something else. Well, there's, interest, there's an interesting uh, uh, lawyer in Ontario, Rocco Galati. He has a couple of constitutional challenges uh, before the Supreme Court right now. Uh, one related to Trudeau and Morneau's handling of the corona crisis uh, and their failure to have parliament involved in that process. Uh, and then the second is uh, challenging some of the potential uh, mandatory vaccine regulations which could be coming out. So I'm watching those cases uh, with great interest because there may be an application here uh, to apply some constitutional law to, to this issue. Um, so I think as, as much as us Canadians look to the U.S. with their litigious uh, dealings, 
I think there's, there is some value there because it does create a finality of a judgment uh, in a, an, an adjudicated setting, which is, you know, according to the laws of the land, rather than these essentially arbitrary committees, uh, which may or may not even arrive at a decision. And even if they do arrive at a decision, there's no force to push their, their decision into, 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 a for, into effect, sorry. Precisely. Yeah. Uh, another question for you. Uh, can you explain the illusion of abundance? <laughs> you know, this is, this is another one sort of, you know, it, it, it's been pretty evident to me for quite a number of years now, but uh, it, it matters not whether you're talking about the, uh, the ocean fisheries. And, and I'm thinking, you know, particularly in relation to the recreational fishery. Um, if, you, if you think about it, you know, I said the Alberta you know, um, Robertson Creek hatchery turns in the early morning, was that sort of, you know, rocks and reefs and little points and kelp beds and people fishing sort of, you know, always within sight of the beach, you know, and that kind of thing. Oh, well, look at it now, you know, you got these offshore fleets of huge vessels, you know, with electronics that, uh, you know, made the, the commercial trawlers of yesteryear looked like, you know, babes in the wilderness, you know? So if you look at the collective fishing power of the recreational fishing community now, uh, it bears no resemblance to, to what it once was. And it's the same thing in freshwater. You think about, okay, well, just the access alone that's, uh, you know, prevalent in the Skeena River and its tributaries now, you know, you've got, um, jet boats that uh, there were there were virtually no jet boats you know in the 60s and early 70s okay well look at it now you know you got half the traffic on those rivers like the bulk is comprised of jet boaters okay whether they're guided or unguided or whatever and uh you know so that's a critical access point and then then you've got the road access that's penetrated all up both sides of the skin it didn't exist before nobody was fishing there you know you've got Lodges that are that are in operation on every significant steelhead tributary in Eskina. None of them existed in the 60s, you know, or the 70s even, you know, most of them have sprung up since then. So you look at the pressure that all those operations bring to bear, you know, in, in times and places that were sort of, you know, little eco reserves, if you will, for, for well steelhead in the past. He said, well, there's, there's a cost to that. And, and what happens is, you know, when I say the illusion of abundance, well, the people say, well, shoot, you know, we're catching as many fish as we ever did, you know, well, that's because you've got better equipment, better information, better access than at any time in history. And, you know, you're exploiting an ever increasing or a steady fraction of a, a diminishing supply of fish. So if that's the illusion of abundance, you know, we're so much better at what we do now than at any point in our history that we think, you know, the catches are holding up, but the, the populations must be, but they're not, you know, we're just catching a higher proportion of them because we're too good at what we do. So well, that, that kind of brings into the, the, the age old debate between the, uh, the gut chuckers and the, the fly fishermen uh, on, on the steelhead systems. And I know there was great pushback in the Queen Charlotte's uh, about implementing a bait ban uh, on steelhead. And, you know, clearly if you're uh, engaged in a catch and release fishery, there's no place for the use of bait. No, that's absolutely true. I mean, it's, uh, you know, you know, it's a, a practice whose time is, is uh, long past or should be at least. And you mentioned the Yakun earlier. And I mean, if ever there was a bait river, that's it. 
you know, if you wanted to suck steel out of a log jam or something like that, you did that with a piece of bait in the Yakun River. But, you know, again, with the Yakun, those fish were so aggressive um, that a properly presented fly swung through that lie. I mean, you would, if there was a, a buck and a doe sitting there, you'd get the doe, the next cast, you'd get the buck, and it was just, you know, they were, that's probably been partially their demise, is they're just that level of aggression. I mean, you could, you, and, and people that knew the river, I mean, there was a boulder midstream, you know, you huck it out there, and you'd get a little tap on the first pass, and just reposition, get a little slower and deeper, and wham! And so, you know, if, if fish are hitting a, a chunk of fur and feathers, there's no requirement to be throwing a, a glob of roe through there. You know, that's just, uh, it's unnecessary. Yeah, you, you know, you're, you're catching too high a proportion of the, of the population doing that, and, and uh, you run the risk of injuring them, you know, with lethally or sublethally, and you catch the same fish multiple times over the course of the season, you add up all that, you know, and, you know, that is to the detriment of the population at large. Yeah, yeah, and, and I wish the sport guys would uh, would would accept that as you know that's a requirement of, of where we need to be at, and certainly the 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 Drift Fishers Association was uh, at battle with the, the fly fishing organizations on the Thompson uh, to that to that extent. I mean, even back in the late '90s, I remember the the arguments there, and uh, you know, there's again, if you're a catch and release fishery, why are you fishing with bait? It just it, that's that's draconian. Yeah, I know. And, you know, sadly, I mean, that whole issue on the Thompson was the demise of the Steelhead Society. You know, it's it's never been the same. And that's that's where the Federation of Drift Fishermen, you know, sort of rose from the ashes of the Steelhead Society, basically. You know, and you look back at this point in history and say, oh, boy, what a mistake that was, you know. Right. Yeah. Instead of being sort of a collective voice, it became uh, conquer and divide by the, by the, the powers to be. Yep. Um, and if we move on here, uh, Dr. Daniel Pauly has described the shifting baseline syndrome. Uh, can you explain that for us? Yeah, well, it's, uh, you know, again, it's sort of married to that concept of the illusion of abundance, you know, and uh, I mean, Pauly uh, developed that, uh, that terminology in, a, in a, you know, one of those milestone scientific publication, publications several years ago, but, uh, you know, so the average angler of today goes out, you know, and uh, not knowing very much, if anything, about the history of where he's fishing or, you know, what the abundance might have been. And, and uh, his baseline is now, okay? So then, you know, you pass off to the next generation. Well, you know, guess what? Things have slipped dramatically from where they were, you know, but nobody wants to stop and recognize that except guys like Polly and say, well, you know, gee, you know, 10 years, 20 years later, here's what we got. And that's the new baseline. And it, it, it bears no resemblance at all to what preceded it, you know, but okay, well, that's, that's where we work from in today's world sort of thing, you know, and multiple generations of that. And guess what? You know, there's nothing left. Yeah. So essentially a, a lowering of expectations year by year and an, and an acceptance of the lower levels. Yeah, well, and, and it's, I think, refusal to, to understand, you know, from whence we came, you know, so, you know, you, if you, going back to what I said earlier about, you know, when did the steelhead stock assessment in the province start? Well, you know, 100 years after the commercial fishery did. So the baseline was basically in the 70s and early 80s. Well, you know, how many people today recognize how many steelhead were available in, in the major producers in British Columbia in the late 70s and early 80s. 
I, I would say, you know, hardly handful. Any. Yeah. yeah, a handful. You know, and, and we're waking out at a, an alarming rate these days, you know. So, you know, as we go, okay. That's why I read a couple, wrote a couple of books, you know, is to sort of recreate a snapshot, you know, so that it's out there if, if anybody wants to explore. Well, you know, what was it like? What was the Gold River like, you know? I mean, we're down to zero, right? They, they kind of zero winter steelhead in the Gold River doing their snorkel surveys last year. It's, wow. To me, that's unimaginable. Yeah. But, you know, the, the, the people who, who see those emails and those sort of, you know, messages in today's world think that, oh, well, you know, if there was, you know, 500 fish, you know, the world would be a wonderful place. No, no, talk to me about when there was 5,000 fish, yeah. you know? So that's the shifting baseline, right? The guys in today, they have no concept of what went before them. And, and again, that's, you know, that's why I did the snapshot thing with the books, you know, it's like, okay, well, you know, here's a picture if you care to look at it and, and contemplate it. And I guess some of that has also been uh, propagated by the government. I mean, I know Harper had a war against fishery science, was, was uh, dismantling information and destroying records of, of baseline data I think for the ability to push his pipeline through. Um, so that's also exacerbated the problem in terms of actual hard data that's uh, available. Yeah, well, one of the, when, when I was working on my Skeena book, I spent a lot of time with the librarian at the Pacific Biological Station. You know, it was just a treasure trove resource. It was unbelievable, you know, the, the stuff that uh, he was able to pass on to me through his, you know, career in the library business and all that. Well, you know, the Harper administration eliminated the library. Gone. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's <clears throat> to me, that's a crime against humanity. I mean, that's... Uh, it, it is. That, I mean, that's it, a, you know, uh, the, the, <clears throat> the storehouse of information that was available through that library and, and uh, the guy who ran it sort of thing was just irreplaceable. And, you know, who even knows now? You know, I bet you could, you know, ask at least half of the staff of the biological station today. Well, so uh, do you know anything about the history of the library here? And you just get a bunch of blank stares. Yeah, and that's, that's, that's willful destruction of the past to implement your own future, essentially. Yeah, that's just amazing, you know? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's, that's a, sh a shameful situation without doubt. Uh, Bob, so who ultimately owns the fish? And uh, what about the fundamental question of conservation versus allocation? Well, you know, <laughs> we like to think that uh, the, uh, the public of Canada owns its fish, you know, and that uh, we all have a stake in the allocation of those animals. But in, in fact, you know, if you look at the way governments have operated, uh, you know, it, you got to get the impression that uh, the, the ownership of fish is essentially being passed over progressively to our First Nations communities now. And uh, the rest of us need not apply. And in, in terms of allocation, it goes back to these, you know, these multiple forums, you know, where you've got, you know, a sport fish advisory board and a commercial fishery advisory board. And then, you know, a plethora of First Nations that meet privately and independently with DFO. And, uh, you know, each sort of makes its case, I guess, for a piece of the pie, not knowing what the others are getting, except that, you know, both recreational and commercial are getting a lot less, and they don't find out until very much after the fact, you know, how much less, you know, so all these 
allocations, you know, that go to First Nations communities now, uh, you know, and those secret negotiations that uh, none of us are privy to until after the fact, you know, that, that tells me who owns the fish. You know, in the eyes of the government, they're, I call it, you know, fish are the currency of reconciliation. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's pretty hard to deny that argument, you know, the way things have progressed over the last, you know, three, four, five years. Yeah. So, so, you know, we might think we own the fish, but I, I don't see evidence of it in, in terms of how they're being allocated these days. Well, let, let's uh, examine the situation a little further then. Um, you know, in your first book there, Skeena Steelhead, there's uh, some archival reports uh, gleaned from the Hudson's Bay Company records uh, concerning the Fort Connolly area uh, in the early times there, 1822-23. And the, re the reports clearly state that the quality of the, the dried fish that was procured from the native traders uh, was of such low food value and quality that even the most robust company employees' constitution was ruined. You know, given that, our, or in terms of written record, are we to believe that uh, there was a flourishing native society in this area? No, it was a survival situation, it sounds like. Well, you know, and, and you know, you hear all these claims that, uh, you know, the, you know, the European settlers, you know, just destroyed the First Nations communities and populations through, you know, smallpox and all that kind of stuff, you know, and oh, it was deliberate and blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, once again, in doing the basic research for that Skeena book, you know, I went to the Hudson's Bay archives and uh, I found no evidence, absolutely zero evidence that there was anywhere near the population of First Nations people in Northwestern British Columbia that people today say there was. They talk about communities of, you know, thousands of people. Well, you know, how did that escape the written records of people that were there at the time? You know, you couldn't have missed, you know, five or 10,000 people in some of these places if, if that was, if there was any credibility at all around those stories. No, Life certainly not. Hard. Absolutely. And by the time Hudson's Bay had come out west, they'd had over 100 years of uh, business in, in Canada. And so they would have, if there had been a greater population, they would have made note of it because they would have... Uh, deployed more resources in those areas to have uh, improved their trading ability with, with the local population. So it's, it's highly unlikely that they would have uh, uh, downplayed the population numbers there. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I mean, you know, once again, you know, I, I tried to look at it from every angle when I was uh, examining those, those, those archival records, you know, and I mean, I just couldn't build any case at all that there was anywhere near the number of people living in Northwest British Columbia that, uh, you know, is commonly believed today. Yeah. And certainly and, on a geological, you know, sorry, carry on, carry on. Well, I was just going to say, you know, the, the other part of it, you know, the, the, uh, the incident at uh, the, the Badine Weirs that eventually gave rise to, to the, um, my dog's coming to, here. <laughs> <laughs> coming to say hello. Anyway. Yeah. He can hear the voice and he wants to know what's going on, but, Okay, so the, you know, the, a fishery officer from, you know, Prince Rupert arrives up at the, uh, the Babine Weirs there and, you know, is, is appalled at uh, the extent of the operation there and claims that they caught a million sockeye. Uh, you know, step back for that, think about that for a minute. A million sockeye. For God's sake, the commercial fishing industry was hard pressed with its multitude of 
of participants and canneries and all that kind of stuff, they're hard pressed to process a million sockeye in Prince Rupert. And you're telling me that this merry little band of First Nations people from Fort Bad, Babine, caught a million sockeye and somehow processed them and used them for trade and commerce and all that kind of stuff. It's just bullshit. That's all I can label it as. Yeah. Well, and but you know, it the gave other rise to the gill nets, right? Right. You know, that's that was the critical point was that in return for removal of the barricades, DFO provided gill nets, I think it was every second year, you know, to, to replace those barricades. And we've had gill nets with us in rivers ever since. Right, right. Yeah, and I mean, I guess, the, and just going back to the quantification of those population numbers, I mean, we're, we're of no um, you know, illusion that a, an oral story given three iterations of uh, storyteller is no longer the same story as what it began. Bingo. And with, with, without a, a constructive means of counting, which I don't believe they had, how could they ever quantify either their populations? I mean, they, they probably had an idea of how many family groups were in the area, but in terms of quantifying that as 3,500 or 35,000, they didn't have the math capability to make those estimations. And same thing with the fish. I mean, whatever they caught was enough to feed them, hopefully for the season. And if they had a surplus, maybe they traded with somebody further upstream for some other product. Um, but you know, the, the incredible ruggedness of those uh, uh, estuary, or sorry, the, the riparian areas, I mean, there's, you're not walking through there barefoot without protective clothing. I mean, that's just, that's a fairy tale. No, I, I agree. And, you know, I mean, you, you bring up the point of the oral history and it, it, it you know, it drove me crazy that uh, oral history was allowed to be entered in, in the court proceedings and some of the monumental uh, court proceedings, the Delgamu case in the, in the Skeena country. But, I mean, take 15 sport fishermen, you know, whisper in the ear of the first one, you know, uh, you know, uh, the events of the day or something like that and tell them to pass it on and see what the story looks like at the end of the line. Well, you and, know, and that's oral history, right? Fishermen might be a bad example, but uh, you know, uh, I guess they tend they tend to exaggerate and 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 make things up. But uh, I mean, you, you're, it's point taken. I mean, that is is if that is a, a a legal precedent that you can tell a story, not based on any factual evidence, and that creates a problem. Yeah, and it, it, it you know another manifestation of that is is the business of the uh, you know the overlapping land claims well how do they arise well it's because you know this group over here says well you know historically this that and the other thing and that was our traditional territory well the guy on the other side of the hill is saying the same thing right so would you people please go away and get your story straight and come back when it is yeah yeah uh, and then just circling back to my my first statement there and, and the archival records of the hudson's bay company um it i seem to remember uh, something in there, which basically said that until the white settlers offered advice on techniques for curing the fish, uh, that's when the, the, the quality of that product actually improved. Yeah, that could very well be. I mean, I think, you know, the, the arrival of salt, for example, was probably a, you know, a major feature in, in the ability of uh, people to preserve not just fish, but, you know, probably, you know, game animals as well. So yeah, and, and you know, canning and all that sort of thing, you know, I'm not sure whenever that, that hit the scene, but uh, you know, there was no canning of fish going on before the Europeans arrived, that's for sure. Sure, sure. And you know, I guess the other important uh, 
piece of this puzzle, if we look at on a geological time scale, you know, somewhere 10,000, 10, 10 to 12,000 years ago, North America was covered under two miles of ice. Uh, the entirety of the region we're talking about here in the Skeena was a, was a barren wasteland. And when that ice receded, it was a, you know, it was like a, it was a gravel pit. There was nothing there. And so the migration of, and of course, the, the, the antecedent floods, which uh, denuded much of uh, what is now uh, the United States, would have also tremendously affected the peoples that inhabited those regions. And so the, the, the time period that it must have taken those people to reach the Skeena must have been thousands and thousands of years. I mean, there, it's likely that there was no inhabitants there up until maybe a couple of thousand years ago. Yeah, you know, and I, I don't profess to be any kind of a, you know, a, an authority on those sorts of things, but, uh, you know, the land bridge across, you know, from East Asia, you know, to uh, North America is uh, supposedly a, a corridor for the, the early colonization and all that sort of thing, you know, and I, I don't see that that's ever been acknowledged in the, you know, in any of the sort of modern day discussions about who came from where, when, and who owns what, that kind of thing. Sure, sure. And, and again, certainly, you know, if, if a group of hunter-gatherers were migrating northward, those people probably were also pushed out of the prime habitat for whatever reason. I mean, they were either uh, in conflict with the people that were occupying that place, they were, you know, outcasts, and so you, you were moving northward probably with less and less genetic fitness because they were being pushed out of the, the prime areas. And you know, certainly, given the opportunity to reside in Chilliwack as a hunter-gatherer versus uh, Kitwanga or Hazleton, I mean, I know where I would choose. <laughs> no, I, I mean, those sorts of, you know, observations are, are entirely reasonable in my view, but uh, my goodness, you're trying to advance anything like that in today's world, and you're going to be labeled in a hurry. <laughs> well, that, that's, that's kind of where we're trying to go here. I mean, we're, we're basically uh, facing uh, a type of an apartheid, race, racist-based fisheries management protocol where we have... 4.9% uh, of the Canadian population dictating to the rest of us what should happen based on what really amounts to a fairy tale. Yeah, and, and you know, again, you, you dare breathe those sorts of comments and you're instantly labeled and uh, the, the media won't touch anything like this. You know, they, they don't want to hear any kind of other side of a story. It's just, uh, you know, they're... It's, it's whatever, uh, you know, the, the latest reconciliation move or an apology from the prime minister for some perceived atrocities of yesteryear and all that kind of stuff, you know. I mean, the media talks about that. They don't, they don't ever investigate the, whether there is any validity to the historical claims that are being made here or, you know, what's reasonable given your point that 4.9% uh, of the population, you know, the, the tail wagging the dog, as it were, you know. Uh, there is another side to that story, but I don't think it's ever being told. Well, it's, it's at you know, the expense of the resource. Absolutely. I mean, and the, the, the equivalency is, uh, I don't ever recall the Germans uh, earning any reparations from the Italians for what happened from the Romans. I mean, that's the, the process of human conquest and expansion throughout the globe is one of exactly that conquest and and uh you know the the stronger have dominated the weak 
And it's the same in these native communities. I mean, the, the Haida came across who are clearly of different genetic makeup than the, the rest of the mainland Indians. And, you know, there was terrible atrocities. I mean, they would, they would uh, murder all the, the older men, uh, slash the younger men's feet with um, oyster shells and tie them up and leave them on an island in the Skeena until they finished their, their murderous uh, um, pillaging up, up uh, coast and then drag them back as slaves on the way home. I mean, that, and that's, these are the people that were glorifying as somehow they were custodians of the resource and, and et cetera. I mean, you know, jumping forward to the, to the, the gillnets, you know, to me, a gillnet isn't a traditional fishing method. A monofilament gillnet is not a traditional fishing tool. No, and you know, again, the origin of the gillnets is that barricades agreement in the early 1900s, you know, with DFO struck to get rid of the, the weirs on the upper Babian River there. That was the origin of gillnet use by the First Nations community and rivers throughout this province. You're, and you're absolutely correct. There's no historic precedent for gillnets. None. You know, and, and it's another one of those issues that, you know, if you were to go to any First Nations community along the Skeena today and ask them, well, do, do you know anything about the history of gillnets? You're going to get nothing but blank stares. They sure. don't have a clue. Sure. Yeah, and, and, and that's, I think, what people, you know, in this broader argument, um, if you're pursuing a traditional way of life, then do it traditionally. If you're trying to masquerade a traditional way of life and a traditional right to a resource through modern harvesting means, that's incongruent. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> once again, you look at the, the technology that's being employed by First Nations in their harvesting these days, you know, I mean, one of my close colleagues in the, in the fisheries business, you know, sent me a bunch of pictures of gillmetters in the, in the Skeena, or sorry, in the, in, on Fraser, right in the Port Man area the other day. Well, you know, you're talking commercial gillnet fishing vessels, you know, conducting food, social, and ceremonial fisheries in the Fraser River. Well, come on. How can that possibly be perceived as some kind of a traditional fishery? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's ludicrous. And, and what, is, what is the destination of that fish? I mean, clearly there's not enough native mouths to feed that that's only being consumed amongst those communities. Oh, yeah. I, I, I mean, look no further than Port Alberni, you know. I mean, I, I just I can't believe what goes on over there. And, uh, you know, they, uh, those enhanced, enhanced, I, I point out, sockeye coming back to the, uh, to the Great Central and Scroat Lake systems, you know, tell me there's some kind of a traditional fishery for those things. You know, rubbish. You know, and yet, what do you got now? You know, there is, once again, there were pictures of a one day where they harvested <coughs> 6,000 sockeye, you know, at, uh, in the plunge pool below Paper Mill Dam. And, and it's just like a feeding frenzy. You know, it's just a bunch of young First Nations people in there, you know, just murdering everything they can get their hands on, you know. And what happened to those 6,000 fish? You know, as one of my RCMP colleagues working over in that part of the world says, Oh, yeah, a bunch of them will end up in the garbage dumper, you know, pitched off the side of the road eventually because they couldn't sell that kind sure. of thing, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, that's reality, you know, and uh, you, you try and bring points like that forward, you know, and even with photographic evidence, you know, nobody wants to talk about it, you know, forbidden subject. 
Yeah, yet, yet we have, uh, you know, a historic few thousand individuals that were loosely organized and clinging to the edge of survival that are now dictating resource management policy for everyone else. I don't know how anybody could deny that. Yeah, I mean, it's, you, it's, you, 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 have to, you have to have your head in the sand or uh, up Mr. Dressup's rear to believe that kind of nonsense, right? Well, yeah, I agree. And, you know, once again, I think it's, you know, the very sort of one-sided reporting by the media in this country, you know, it's, uh, it's politically incorrect, you know, to point out any, any negativity associated with, with First Nations, you know, fish harvesting or, you know, resource harvesting in general, probably. So, you know, you can't go there. So the general public, I mean, you know, the, the voting public of this country is, you know, sequestered along the 49th parallel for the most part, you know, and, uh, you know, downtown Vancouver, do you think they know anything at all about what goes on there out there and the, and the waters and, and the landscape? Not a chance, you know, all they hear is the media. Well, have you got this one-sided story all the time about all the, you know, the poor malign First Nations people, they've been so mistreated and abused and all this kind of stuff, you know. Uh, if we can, you know, compensate for that with fish, well, well, that seems like a good idea, right? Well, when there's no more fish, then what? Yeah, then what are they gonna then, then what are they gonna take? Uh, which which sort of brings us to the Wet'suwet'en land claim, um, you know, which is a, a massive territory that they're uh, under MOU to to acquire. Um, you know, to me, this looks like a bargaining chip to push the uh, coastal gas link through their territory. And there's certainly some dissension amongst the the Wet'suwet'en in terms of. Uh, you know what that looks like uh you know both uh both the land claim and the the pipeline yeah I, you know once again i think it uh that's a that's a hard point to deny um you know the whole fracturing of the first nations community the business of hereditary versus elected chiefs and the you know the the domination of preference by the first nations community according to the to their elected representatives you know as opposed to the minority that are getting all, all the media attention, right? You know, uh, how does the story ever get to the public? You know, and what, what's, and, and, you know, once again, everything behind closed doors, you know, you and I have no idea what federal and provincial governments are negotiating with the Wet'suwet'en leaders, uh, i.e. the hereditary chiefs. You know, and there's some pretty interesting history associated with some of those people too, as a matter of fact, you know, and some of that's been pointed out to, to me in, in private messages and all that kind of stuff, you know, and people aren't making this up. You know, there's, there's validity, there's facts behind this kind of stuff, but that stuff never hits the, the media. No. You know, they, they, you know, whatever is First Nations name is there now that we see his face all over from Oka to, you know, the Smithers sort of thing, you know. <clears throat> You know, that's the only voice that ever emerges. He's on a roll, he knows it. The ask just gets bigger. You know, so what well, does that we've, leave us? We, we've created this victimhood society where they've uh, garnered the sympathy response and uh, they're not stupid, they're playing it up. You know, they, they maybe have a, a, a rightful um, claim to being downtrodden, but I think a lot of that is part of their victimhood. And now there's an entire industry which has been created around uh, profiteering off of that victimhood. 
Yeah. And who's paying for it? Yeah. The, the, we are in the fish army. <laughs> well, exactly. You know, and that, that's the other side of it. I mean, you know, the, all the, the protest camp up on the, the upper Maurice and all that kind of, you know, so, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the, the people of highest rank and authority within the First Nation community are traveling back and forth to that site, you know, in their nice shiny new pickup trucks and all that kind of stuff. Well, you know, what do those things operate on? Well, it would be fossil fuels the last time I checked, you know, so, you know, how do you connect the dots on that sort of thing? It's their uh, traditional F-150 powered by traditional uh, gasoline. Well, you know, it doesn't go unnoticed, you know, to me at least. And yeah. Well, I think the other, other, big, other big problem that we have is that most Canadians are unaware that most of these native governing bodies uh, that our governments are negotiating with are best akin to a medieval feudal fiefdom complete with internal nepotism, misogynistic ideologies, and a questionable hereditary system. Well, once again, you know, that's the forbidden subject. You know, you, you try and bring any of that sort of fact background information forward in today's world oh no nobody wants to touch that you know nobody in, in the media at least you know so again you know there's a, a very biased one-sided picture emerges out of all this you know and uh, it's at our expense I think and in, in terms of you know the large majority of the population most of whom who don't have a clue and probably don't care either but those of us that do or it puts us in an impossible position well, it's, which is proponing or being proponents of these inconvenient truths. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, Bob, are fish being used by the government as a currency for bribery? Yeah, well, you know, I, I soften that a bit by calling it reconciliation. But, uh, I mean, unquestionably, fish are the currency of, of what's going on these days. You know, so, as I said, you know, a few moments ago, you know, the because they're on such a roll, the ask just keeps getting bigger. Well, ask probably isn't the best word. It's probably demand, right? They got everything they, they asked for last time. Well, they'll demand that much more this time. And, you know, the behind closed doors, you know, discussions seem to uh, accommodate them at each turn of the road here, you know? So, and, it, and it's always on the base. Well, oh my God, we don't want to end up in court on this, you know? Well, I don't know, maybe we should at some point, you know? So, you know, let's, let's create some certainty here. At least if, if things go to court, we all get to see what's happening. Yeah, it's full disclosure. So we've also witnessed the erosion of scientifically supported and mandated conservation requirements in, in favor of the food, social, and ceremonial fisheries. You know, I guess that's the question there is, you know, what is happening there, which I think we've kind of answered, which is it's, it's pacification uh, in the highest order. Yeah, and, and uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I tried to sort of wrap my mind around the distance of, okay, well, we had the, you know, the Canadian Constitution that laid out the priorities, you know, conservation supersedes all else. Once conservation requirements are met, it's food, social, and ceremonial fisheries. Third in line is everybody else. So it, it seemed to lay out pretty clearly that there was a boundary between conservation and, and the uh, commencement of food, social, and ceremonial fisheries. There is no boundary anymore. I mean, that's just a gray area. It's completely blurred. We've got 
you know, there's all kinds of, you look at the status of uh, Fraser River Chinook and all those populations that originate from upstream of the big bar slide, sockeye, the same thing, you know, and you think, well, you know, boy, that's a desperate conservation situation. It was desperate before the big bar slide. It's that much worse now. And you think, well, full stop on any kind of fisheries that might influence those stocks, right? No, you can, you can go to a separate DFO website and you can find evidence of all sorts of gillnet openings in the main stem Fraser throughout the summer. All kinds of them, you know, almost every day there's somebody fishing somewhere, you know, with the legal authority mandated by DFO, you know, as a, it's a food, social and ceremonial fishery. Well, that's what was going on under the Portman Bridge there a few days ago, you know, when you got, you know, pictures of commercial fishing vessels down there, quote, food, social and ceremonial fishing. Well, how does that work? You know, every, everybody believes that there's a conservation problem, right? Except the guys operating those nets, I guess. But, you know, DFO is trying to tell us, oh, serious business, conservation, conservation, conservation. Well, how can you possibly put something as indiscriminate as a gillnet in the pathway of those endangered stocks? Makes no yeah, sense. And, and we're actually at the point now where those uh, Chinook, Fraser Chinook are on the endangered species list, are they not? Well, you know, that... I think there was, uh, you know, and again, pre-Big Bar Slide, I think, uh, you know, the, the Committee on the Status of Endangered Wildlife in Canada, COSAWIC, had assessed 13 uh, Fraser River Chinook stocks, and I, I think most of them were, you know, from the upper river, because they were, you know, there was evidence that they were in the worst shape. So out of the 13, I think 12 of them were, were considered or labeled as endangered by the experts, okay? I mean, COSAWIC is not a bunch of you know, randomly pick, you know, bums off the street or something like that. These are the best of the best, you know, fishery scientists or, or uh, natural resource scientists. They're saying, look, these fish are endangered. Well, okay, that was before Big Bar. What do you suppose their status is following that slide and everything that uh, has occurred since? And yet we're still fishing. Yeah, I mean, that, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, if this was, uh, if we were talking about some furry critter, um, with spots or what have you, uh, there'd be an entirely different um, feeling about this subject, I'm sure. Yeah, and you know, it, 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 another part of this that I uh, can't help but observe either is that, uh, you know, there's kind of this upstream downstream hierarchy, it seems, along the Fraser. So, you know, there's, um, I think there's 22 or 23 individual First Nations community that DFO negotiates with behind those closed doors and all that kind of stuff, you know, between between uh, Tawasson and uh, the lower end of the Fraser Canyon. Beyond that, God knows what happens, right? But um, in, the, in that early corridor, you know, you take a look at, okay, the Musqueams, for example. Man, they're first in the line on everything. They get to fish more often and, and you know, take more than anybody, you know, and it's progressively less as you go upstream. Well, guys, at the end of the line, you know. How much left? Right? And, and uh, so... Are you telling me that the Musqueams rely on the, the capture of endangered Chinook from the lower Fraser River for their survival? They're sitting on some of the priciest real estate in, in the province sort of thing, you know? They're not exactly, uh, you know, hand-to-mouth existence trying to feed themselves with the last of the Chinook salmon. Yeah. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. Why isn't the media talking about this sort of thing? Yeah. Yeah, you know, and that's what is the First Nation at the at the end of the line up there that's uh, that's got virtually nothing to even fish for, even if they did go fishing. 
why aren't they beating up on the Musqueams and saying, well, hey, wait, what about us? What about this, you know, this sharing conservation focused society and all that kind of stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah, and, and that kind of, uh, you know, the, the thing that jumps out to me there is a lot of the natives are often uh, complaining that there, you know, there's been a lack of consultation and, you know, their voices haven't been heard, yet 95.1% of the Canadian population seems not to have a voice at all. Uh, yeah, pretty accurate observation in my view. I mean, and that's, you know, how, how are we functioning in a democracy with that kind of uh, precedent set? I mean, that doesn't, that's clearly nonsensical. Uh, and DFO's comeback to that will be that, uh, oh, well, you know, we consulted everybody and, you know, going back to this business of, you know, the three sectors, you know, recreational, commercial, First Nations, and all that kind of stuff. And, and you know, we have a plan. They call it an integrated fisheries management plan. And they have one for the North Coast and one for the South Coast. And these are like 400, 500 page documents that, you know, unbelievable to try and wade through that stuff. But, and, and Lord knows what the collective cost of putting those things together is. They come out, you know, typically they come out sometime shortly after the, the fishing has begun, you know, that discuss between the pages of those things. And, and, you know, you complain that, well, whoa, wait a minute now, what's going on here? DFO says, oh, well, it's all covered in the integrated fisheries management plan, which was out there for public comment and distribution way back when. Are you kidding me? You, <laughs> I've done that, you know, I've looked at some of these things in the past and said, well, I don't, you know, this is wrong or, you know, that doesn't make sense or what are you doing here? You send those comments off, gone, ozone. You're never going to hear a peep out of that, you know? So to sit, for DFO to suggest, oh, well, you know, we, we did this comprehensive integrated fisheries management plan and, and, and it was endorsed by the public. No, that's just rubbish, you know? The public had no idea what was coming at them from a First Nations fishery perspective, you know? until it actually happens in season. And then the fallback that, oh, well, you know, you had opportunity to comment on that. It's in the, it's in the plan. Well, if you had opportunity to comment, it just disappeared. Yeah, it was, wasn't included. You, you have no influence whatsoever. So is there a level at which the conservation requirement will become sufficient to curtail the uh, FSC fishery? I'm not seeing it. We haven't, you know, we haven't, basically until the last fish is swimming, they'll be able to, to pursue those fish. Yeah, well, you know, I've seen reference maybe three or four times this year that, uh, you know, somebody reports gillnetting in Lower Fraser. Oh, oh, well, that's a, there's a, there's a funeral. There's a, a ceremonial harvest allowed of three fish. Uh, what, what does that mean? Is that like, three fish per attendee at the funeral? Is it three fish per funeral? Uh, you know, I have no, put some context around that because that's a meaningless statement. Well, it's going to be interesting to see what the native um, uh, standpoint will be once they've fished these last stocks out of existence, uh, whether they're going to take blame for the culpability or they're just going to point the finger at DFO. What do you think? Yeah. Uh, you know, that's, and again, that's, we've created this situation where we're, you know, treating people like children and then we expect them to act like something other than children. Don't disagree. <laughs> uh, moving along then, you know, I guess the next, uh, in the Skeena territory there, the, the, the Gitsan, maybe the next ones to lay a claim on a, 
vast swath of the province. Um, you know, what's going to be left of BC when this when this is all finished? No, it's 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 the the last bastion of you know of a, of a lot of recreational river recreational fishing in British Columbia. Make no mistake, we lose that, it's over. You know, we're already you know more or less excluded from the NAS watershed and anything beyond that, forget it. Nobody goes there anyhow, it's too far and all that sort of thing. And there's less fish anyways, but, uh, you know, the, it, between the Gitsans and the Wet'suwet'ans, I mean, if, you know, their traditional land claims are upheld one way or another by governments, yeah, it, you know, you, you better get a garage sale together for all your fishing gear because it's over. Yeah, I was kind of joking with that uh, <clears throat> earlier with, uh, with someone. Um, yeah, and, you know, my personal experience um, up in the Queen Charlotte's um, witnessing what the Haida or the Haida's forest management practices have been uh, once they took the reins. Uh, I hadn't been back in, in about uh, six or seven years. And my, my first trip back, I was shocked to see that they were <clears throat> logging, you know, poor quality second growth spruce, uh, which was supposed to be within the Yakun management corridor. Um, and they're, you know, 50 meters to the Yakun, which is a class S1B stream. So, I mean, they've absolutely minimized the regulations. Um, and, and that to me is very, it's very shocking and very disturbing, uh, as well as some of logging that was taking place in, on the, the banks of the, the Yakun Lake. So, you know, given the potential handover of these land claims, you know, I don't think we're going to see some new and, and highly evolved management practices coming from these groups. Yeah, well, you know, it doesn't take but, a, you know, a, a quick look around at some of the photographs that are, you know, in, in, involved in that uh, protest business up on the Maurice River with the Wet'suwet'en and all that. You look at the background, you, man, there's clear cuts all over the place up there. Well, who do you suppose partook of a lot of that? You know, there is a lot of First Nations people, Wet'suwet'en included, that, that, partook of, you know, the creation of clear cuts and the construction of the roads to access them and all that sort of thing, you know. So to suggest that these are the ultimate custodians of the resource and that, you know, somehow, you know, the, you know, us descendants of European settlers are desecrating their, you know, their traditional burial grounds and all this kind of stuff with berry picking areas, blah, blah, blah. No, no, they've been doing that to themselves for years and years and years, but, you know, they just absolutely if they even understand that, they refuse to recognize it. And there's, you know, I, I, I like, you know, when I was in Smithers, I got to know one of the prominent First Nations guys from the Wet'suwet'en there. I've seen him on, you know, many, many of the news clips uh, associated with the, the uh, protest business up in the Maurice and so on and so forth. Well, he's done extremely well by sort of subletting the logging in his in traditional territory you know, up on the north side of the, of the Balk Bay River and all that sort of thing. And, and that information was, was provided to me by one of their own. You know, sure. they were like, oh, you want to check out just uh, what's been going on there, you know? And this guy lives in a palace at Morristown. I mean, I, you know, you can't mistake, you know, that castle up on the rock there. Oh, yeah, we know where that belongs to. Yeah, and I'm sure he's not sharing his abundance with the, the rest of his band members. Well, that was kind of the message from the, the guy that gave me the story, you know? Yeah, yeah it's a, that's an interesting, interesting turn of events, really, right? And I, th and I think yeah. your, your, your description of uh, 
the custodians of the resource, the stewards of the land. Uh, and, you know, their argument that we've been here for thousands of years and we never had these problems. Well, that's true. When you're fishing the river with a weir and a dip net versus, um, uh, you know, your traditional aluminum skiff with your traditional outboard motor and your traditional monofilament gill net, there's no longer, you're no longer uh, an equal part of that ecosystem. You're now apart from that ecosystem and you're, you no longer have the ability to, or your ability to harvest the resource is far in excess of what the resource can withstand. Yeah, and, and you know, you've become what, it, what you accused everybody else of being. Exactly. Exactly. So what's, what's next, Bob? What's next up in that region? What do you think is going to happen up there? I, you know, I'm, I'm very, very concerned about, uh, you know, the access, probably number one, are, are we even going to get to go to these places and, and for how much longer and at what cost sort of thing, you know? And, and the other is the, the supply of fish, you know? And, uh, you know, it, it concerns me that, you know, there, there's, the, the sockeye return, you know, sort of came on a little bit better than was forecast and, uh, you know, facilitated some in-river fisheries that, that uh, supposedly were severely curtailed before then. Uh, the same thing for Chinook. So the principal targets of the First Nations, you know, sockeye and Chinook were, you know, they weren't as heavily exploited this year as, as they may have been if, the, if those runs have been stronger. But so what, what happens is, you know, whatever shortfalls may have occurred with respect to sockeye and Chinook mean that there's going to be more fishing later in the season. Well, guess what comes later in the season? And, you know, if anybody thinks that, you know, they're not going to go target steelhead for the most part, but they'll sure catch them incidentally when they're drifting nets down the, you know, all down the skeena at the mouth of the Kitwinga or, you know, off the mouth of the Kispiak down through Glenbow. Those are just lethal areas, you know, to be harvesting steelhead. And there's lots of evidence that that happens. So, you know, that's my concern. So, you know, shortage of uh, Chinook and Sockeye, well, you know, let's go after the coho, for example, you know, well, gee, the coho and steelhead are probably numerically at about the same status and abundance and all that kind of stuff, you know? So, you know, it's not a happy story and those fisheries are not monitored. Okay. If anybody thinks that, uh, you know, there's some good record keeping there that uh, you can call on from DFO, I got news for them. I tried repeatedly to get DFO to tell me, well, okay, well, you know, what does your catch reporting system look like, you know, for those in-river fisheries and how many steelhead are being caught, you know, and no response, no response year after year after year, not even an acknowledgement of your question, basically. Basically a black hole. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty disturbing. You know, everybody thinks that, well, you know, you've got the Thai test fishery that tells you, you know, roughly how many steelhead are going up the skein and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, how many of them don't get to where their intended destination is? You know, it just, the common perception seems to be that, it, it, that if a fish got past Thai, it's a spawner. Oh, where's that coming from? Right. You know, show me the evidence in support of that. Yeah, that that's even, the, a... even the recreational fishermen, you know, sort of, you know, well, you know, we, we have no footprint. We do no harm. Well, you know what? We're so much better at catching and releasing and over and over and over. And where's the breaking point? Is it the same fish caught twice, three times? I, I don't know. What's, what's the, the longer term, you know, reproductive performance of that fish? 
Yeah, certainly a fish that's caught. Yeah, certainly a fish that's caught two or three times may not have the energy to uh, return to the sea after spawning, for instance. Well, all kinds of things, you know, that uh, had never been looked at. But you know, it, it concerns me. As I said earlier, you know, our, our level of efficiency that creates that illusion of abundance, sort of thing. You know, I, I don't think it's it, it's being looked at as carefully as it should be to uh, to make intelligent decisions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in, in your book, Skeena Steelhead, you stated that the Dease Lake BC Rail Extension Project was the single greatest environmental atrocity in BC. Uh, do you still think that is the case? Uh, I mean, you'd have to look at uh, Site C on a piece that's coming on now as, uh, you know, bigger. And, and as I said earlier, I think, you know, some of the, the hydro dams, you know, and on the Columbia system, you know, in the earlier years, yeah, those are major environmental blights, make no mistake. But, uh, but still, you know, the, the sensitivity of the habitats that that Dease Lake rail extension went through and, and uh, you know, the ability of those environments to recover naturally being as minimal as it is in, in you know, those northern, you know, short rowing season sort of places. Uh, the scars are there, you know, they're, they're going to be there for a very, very long time. And uh, that's tragic in my view. Okay, well, you know, the Site C was, you know, that that's a mega issue, make no mistake. I mean, uh, you know, it's probably going to dwarf most, if not all other environmental issues in this province in days ahead. But, um, but I still maintain for its time, at least, that that uh, BCR extension was just such a blight on the landscape. And, you know, those really sensitive, unproductive habitats, you know, you, you scrape off, you know, a thousand years of evolution of, you know, the natural succession of plants and all that sort of thing, you know, and just throw it aside and expect that somehow that's going to recreate itself in a foreseeable future. Nah, nah. It's, uh, that scar is there for a long, long time. Well, it sounds like as well, you know, the economics of that project were poorly thought out. Uh, you know, the, the same thing I could, I could say applies to Site C, where we're trying to develop a, an LNG industry, which really has no potential for economic gain. I mean, our, our cost to bring that product to the Asian terminals is somewhere in the $8 per billion BTU uh, range, and they're paying in the low $2. So, I mean, there, there is no economic, there isn't, there isn't an economic uh, uh, upside there. there, there's there isn't a business to be had. No, and uh, you know, I I think it's a reality that you know the you know the decision making process. You know, um, it's long and consorted, and and uh, at the whole time that it's uh, it's underway, you know, the economics of the situation are deteriorating. But it seems like governments are locked into making a decision. You know, and. Oh, by the way, you know, you've got a whole bunch of people lined up, for, you know, for jobs and income and all that kind of stuff. And they, they just can't sort of turn that freight train off, it seems, you know, so bad decisions get made, you know, yeah. bad in the long term. I mean, you know, it, it looks good in the short term for, for uh, you know, a current administration that, oh, well, you know, we got how many people employed and, you know, this is a, a superb injection into the economy at a time when it's most needed and all that sort of thing, you know, so. You know, it's a stacked deck. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, it's tough. Bob, if you could go back in time and speak with yourself as an 18 to 20 year old, uh, what would you tell that person? Uh, yeah, be careful, you know, just um, stop the clock to the extent that you can. 
you know, I mean, um, progress is not without cost. You know, there's too many of us on this planet. Our demands are too great. You know, we're compromising all the, the, the times and places that we supposedly cherish. And, uh, you know, if, if you don't look after the basic, you know, productive habitats of this world, whether it's for people or animals or whatever, uh, you know, what do we got? You know, so soften the footprint, you know, be careful. Don't, you know, don't sort of blindly accept, you know, economic development, you know, without understanding, you know, investigating a little bit of, uh, you know, at what cost, you know, uh, what resources are we sacrificing to achieve these short-term economic goals, that sort of thing, you know? So, yeah, I, I, you know, in, in every respect, you know, soften the footprint. And, and what are your personal fears moving forward? That, uh, you know, that <laughs> the dial is not going to move substantially in a, in a positive direction. You know, it, it, it concerns me that uh, here we are talking to, you know, members of the choir talking to each other, you know, the churchgoers, you know, the same guys, you know, you know, sort of agreeing on, on common problems and all that sort of thing, but, you know, with pretty limited ability, try as we may, you know, to get the message out to a broader public, you know, and, and, and try and create a little bit of momentum that might move things in a slightly different direction. Well, it's certainly my objective with this program is to, you know, push a, a message of reason and reality uh, and try to reach the hearts and minds of some people to think critically and don't just accept the politically correct status quo that is essentially pablum and propaganda. Couldn't have said it better. Uh, so, so Bob, if you were in charge of implementing a new strategy for uh, salmon management in British Columbia, what would that look like? Uh, job one, get rid of gillnets. <laughs> you know, I said, you know, the, the one thing that, that is entirely within our control is how much we harvest, where, when, and how. We can control that if we choose to do so. And, you know, the, the business of, uh, you know, using gillnets as some kind of a discriminating harvest tool, forget it. I mean, good heavens, you know, haven't we learned that lesson by now? So, you know, get rid of those things and then we'll have an intelligent discussion about how we're going to replace the, uh, the lost harvest opportunity in times and places where no harm is done. Right. And it, I asked this question to uh, Michael Price. And I'd like to hear your response too. If if we if all the stakeholders collectively agree to take a break, let's say a four to five year period where we're essentially not harvesting any fish, or we're or we're focusing our harvest on a on a terminal fishery of stocks which are enhanced as i.e. the the baboon stocks, is that a policy or a technique which could result in some increased abundance for those next cycles? It, you know, it's the experiment that, that is screaming to be done, you know, pick a, a place of significance, you know, and, and I'm not talking about, you know, Bumfuzz Creek in the middle of nowhere or something like that, you know, but you take a system of significance like the Skeena and say, okay, we are not going to harvest any fish here for the next four or five years. And we are going to invest an awful lot of resources, you know, First Nations, come on on board, you know, you're part of the equation in that sense, you know, commercial guys, recreational guys, you know, instead of 
spending money in a consultative arena with all these people and producing, you know, integrated fisheries management plans. No, 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 no. Put all that money to assessing the worth or the outcome of no harvest. It could very well surprise us. I think there's some shades of that this year, in fact, you know, and with all the, the abuse that's been heaped on DFO about, you know, the Chinook harvest regulations in the ocean, you know, for recreational commercial, I think there's some pretty good evidence that that works. You know, if you don't catch them out there at the top end of the funnel sort of thing, they come out the bottom. Sure. <laughs> you know, just look, why can't we just give that a chance and, uh, you know, just see what nature can do for us? Well, it's certainly an opportunity instead of maintaining and, and uh, continuing this division amongst the, sh the stakeholders and, and the, the interest groups here. If everyone can really get together behind this, uh, then, you know, maybe that is also a pathway forward for everybody to develop a new level of respect and cooperation. Uh, and, of course, more abundance, if that's the ultimate everyone's ultimate goal as a stakeholder in the fishery should be an increase in abundance. And if we all have to take a, a, a seat for a couple of years and let the salmon do what they're doing, you know, that's, I think, in some creates a new level of harmony and a new, long, new level of understanding amongst the, the groups and have a positive outcome. I see absolutely no longer term downside to that sort of approach. No. Yeah. So, uh, Bob, how can people get involved or contribute to promote to the viability of uh, wild steelhead for the future? What, what are your recommendations? Try and be aware, you know, just uh, try and understand something about the, uh, you know, the nature of the beast, you know, what it takes to grow one, uh, you know, where they originate, how sensitive the, those habitats are, you know, just be aware of something other than where, when, and how to get them. You know, try and understand the basic animal that, that's providing you that opportunity and, and uh, you know, do your level best to, to uh, preserve and protect the habitat from whence it came. Uh, read a uh, Roderick Haig Brown volume and, and immerse yourself in some of the, uh, the philosophy and the lore about the subject. You know, there, again, there, what's the downside of that? You know, if everybody had uh, read Haig Brown and, uh, Instead of, you know, look at the latest YouTube video on, you know, the, the latest, greatest fish slaying technique, we'd be a lot better off. Sure, sure. And Bob, in, in conclusion here, if people want to uh, learn more about your work or, or buy some of your books, where should they go? Well, the, you know, the, the, the website, steelheadvoices.com, you know, it's, uh, I mean, that was something I, I embarked on as a, in an attempt to, you know, bring some of the issues to a broader public. And, uh, you know, there's a link there where they can get the books too as well. But I should point out that the, uh, that the second book, um, you know, Days of Rivers Past, the snapshot of a bunch of the Blue Ribbon Steelhead Rivers that I've known over the years. The, uh, the deal on that is that uh, all, all proceeds from sales go to the BC Federation of Fly Fishers. So, you know, if, if if people think they're lining my pockets by buying a book, no, I want them to understand that no, no, the whole, the whole agenda was that uh, the Federation of Fly Fishers covered the publication costs in return for an agreement between us that the profits from sales go to them, you know, to be used as they best decide, you know, for conservation focus, that sort of thing. So, you know, keep that in mind for anybody that, uh, that might want to look for one of those books. 
Okay, well, that's great. I will uh, put the, the link to both steelheadvoices.com uh, as well as a direct link for, uh, for the, the, the purchase link uh, in the show notes so people have a, a quick and ready uh, means of accessing that information. That would be, you know, greatly appreciated for sure. Excellent. All right, Bob, well, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, hope to have you on again in the future as uh, some, some more developments come forth. And, uh, you know, hopefully at some point we have a more positive discussion about, uh, you know, a, a beautiful surprise of uh, an increase in abundance of the stocks that we're trying to preserve here. We'll do our best, you know. <laughs> we won't go quietly. How's that? That's right. That's right. Excellent, sir. Well, uh, thank you so much for your time. Um, this is Michael Martins, your host of the Martins Critical Review, signing off for today. And we'll catch you again on the next episode. Take care, everyone. Thank you.